Beverly Cinema presents the Pure Cinema Podcast, and um, we have, I'm, I'm Brian Sauer, by the way, and uh, my co-host Elric Kane is joining me, but we have a really, really special guest joining us today, director Edgar Wright. Thank you so much for being on the show, sir. Thank you. Coming to you from uh, deserted London. <laughs> <laughs> 24 days deserted. later. I mean, it, it seems like it's deserted. Yeah. I mean, I, I live in the center of London, and... Uh, you know, I don't see my neighbors that often, uh, you know, on a good day, let alone now. But what is kind of amazing is, uh, you know, we, every Thursday they do this clap for the NHS, for the kind of the, um, the doctors and nurses and, uh, and hospital staff. People clap at eight o'clock on a Thursday. And what's amazing, I go out and, and listen to it and suddenly I can hear my neighbors, even if I can't see them. It's like, oh, there's tons of people here. I can hear them <laughs> echoing all over the streets. It's really kind of beautiful and stuff. But, that's a um, really that's a really neat thing that they do that. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, and they're doing a similar thing in Los Angeles. Isn't there something happening at eight o'clock at night? Yeah, and very possible. I think clapping would be hard. Everyone's so spread out in LA. You know, it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just podcasts. That's all you hear. <laughs> <laughs> the sound of people potting. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, well, I was curious about like you know staying sane in this time, and I and I really love that you've been posting double features every day. Uh, you know, for people on whether it's Twitter, and obviously we'll get to kind of how people are using Letterbox. But for you, when I first saw the first couple stacks that you posted, I was like, I love these because they are as eclectic as the kind of stuff we're all into. And I'm always curious, how are you deciding what to watch in a period like this? Are you going towards stuff you should be catching up on? Is it stuff that you've always uh, meant to see? Uh, because it's all over the, from high art to like, you know, exploitation. Yeah, I think um, it's a combination of things. I mean, uh, you know, I, I ostensibly, I'm trying to sort of write, but you know, as, as you know, like it's with everything going on, it's not always easy to do that. You can't, I don't know if people can click the on switch and start writing. So usually my go-to when I'm kind of stalling for any reason is to just get inspired by watching movies. And, and obviously, I think even before the kind of lockdown, I, you know, I had actually been ill a little bit and have been staying home a lot more. So I've been watching a lot more things. But I guess the thing that I've been watching is that, you know, I'm not a doomsday prepper in terms of I don't have like an earthquake kit or like a bottle of water and a watch or like sort of, you know, stacks of toilet roll and tin food. I do have so much physical media. I knew it would come <laughs> in handy sometime. And for all the people that laugh and people who kind of steal, collect physical media, I think like, ah, now, now I'm the winner. And I could stay in this panic room forever. Like what you mean, Blu-rays. Um, but I guess I've been watching a lot of films that I uh, had previously been ashamed to say I hadn't seen, which includes a lot of, I guess, older um, international films. And, uh, you know, you always, I'm always like, watching you know kind of uh hollywood films in the 40s and 50s and 30s you know and silent films i hadn't seen and then uh, i had like quietly been going through those big lists like the bfi top 100 films and like i think i'd seen about 75 percent of the list i think oh this is the time to get through that 25 percent hence getting up at seven in the morning this morning and watching visconti's the leopard oh wow (laughs) now that now that is off the list um, <laughs> that's actually still on my list, uh, the Burt Lancaster. I haven't made it. You know, it. I recommend getting up first thing in the morning and watching The Leopard is, is a good thing to do in this time of crisis. <laughs> I tell you what, though, to answer your question seriously, though, one of the things that has, I found, been, and we'll talk about the other bigger thing later, but one thing I found that's been of some solace, actually, is, well, two things. Watching um, 
<laughs> I've been watching a lot of Ingmar Bergman films recently because nice. my girlfriend is Swedish. And so we've been watching a lot of um, Swedish movies. And you would think that like in a, a sort of time of crisis like this, that watching a director's work that mostly deals in existential dread would be <laughs> exactly what you wouldn't want to be watching. And yet I found it like amazingly helpful and soothing. So it's funny, like sometimes like his movies, which uh, have such a sense of kind of soul searching and dread about them and, uh, and what the human race is capable of. And uh, I found it like the perfect time to watch this thing. So watching, I watched Shame by Ingmar Bergman the other day, which I'd never seen. And it felt sort of so kind of um, on the nose for what was happening right now, you know, with uh, two kind of liberals who hadn't really been in, who hadn't been involved in any war before having to sort of actually deal with the, the physical consequences of being like involved in, in a political effort rather than just tweeting about it. Not that they had to <laughs> So there's been that kind of stuff. And then the other thing that I've been watching a lot of that's also been really interesting is sort of partly revisiting some war films. Either I had a faint recollection of watching bits of on TV as a youth or like things that I'd watched at art college like uh, the uh, Roberto Rossellini's War Trilogy. Uh, oh, wow. I think I'd seen Rome Open City in Paisan when I was like 18 or 19 and had sort of only formally understood it. And uh, I watched all three of them again and then watched Germany Year Zero, which I'd never seen. And so seeing those movies, uh, you know, with kind of cities trying to pick up the pieces after the war or, or in the case of Rome Open City during the occupation, I, I find watching those now really extraordinary. And, and then that kind of led into me watching a lot of World War II movies, both kind of like ones shot during World War II, like a, a great Cavalcanti film called Went the Day Well, and then tons of like post-war ones, like um, or, or ones released immediately after the war, like some of the Powell and Pressburger films, like The Small Back Room, and, um, and then le- later World War II films, like Ice Cold and Alex, the J. Lee Thompson movie, and um, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's um, Army of Shadows, um, and the-, the Silence de la Mer, which I'd never seen before. So it's that funny thing where you sort of start watching somewhat random things, and then you start to kind of make your own little kind of thematic double bills. Like just this afternoon, just before I came on to I was just watching The Train with Burt Lancaster. Because oh. uh, I'd never seen it before. I'd always meant to. The Train. They strafed it. They sabotaged it. If we had 10 times as many men, it wouldn't be done. I tell you it will. Do you hear me? I tell you it will. They bombed it. They cursed it. To hell with London. We started this whole thing for one reason. To stop the train. Because the Allies were going to be here. Well, where are they? Every day they've been doing and every day a man has been killed for thinking they were just over the next hill. I say to hell with it. Now they want us to paint the train, let them blow it up. They died for it. And it's that weird thing, it's like, well, I watched The Leopard this morning, let's watch another. <laughs> but like, um, 
made the, the year afterwards, no less. And there couldn't be two more different films. But, what did you um, think of The Train? I thought it was great. It wasn't, what was great about it was um, it had always been one of those movies I'd meant to see. And I'd always seen other directors reference it, like uh, Chris McQuarrie and Chris Nolan, all the oh, Chris's. Nice. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it wasn't what I thought it was. I thought for some reason it was going to be uh, a bit more like Stagecoach or, you know, uh, The General or Mad Max Fury Road. So actually when it turns into like a proper cat and mouse game of strategy, I was really hooked because it was like, ah, this is not what I was expecting. I mean, there's an amazing scene in that movie of showing uh, the French resistance trying to paint the roof of a train whilst Nazis are shooting at them. And that, that's some courage to kind of like be that it's like a paint, a paint, they're trying to achieve a paint job in the middle of machine gun fire. It's a, it's a pretty amazing movie. Yeah. One of Frankenheimer's best. I'm so glad you watched it. That's awesome. Well, it's back in those days where they wouldn't dream of, you know, everything's physical. So when you see scenes with trains and planes interacting, it's real. You know, there's no CGI back then. It was kind of extraordinary. You know, that that thing where, you know, pre-digital effects where, I know lots of people do this. I know like, you know, Dunkirk would do a lot of physical effects. In fact, all the Chris's again, Chris (laughs) would use real helicopters and real planes. But um, it's great to see that in a 60s film, like a 1963 film, where you can see that there was no other way of doing it than actually doing it. So when like five, you know, kind of British bombers come over, you know that they shot that shot for real. Yeah, it's so epic. I, I noticed you also saw some Fassbender, but when you're talking about Bergman, uh, mm. I remembered there's a Fassbender that would film where... Apply to- Fassbender as well. Oh yeah, but there was there was one of his films. I can't remember which one it was, but I always loved it because I could identify where a guy had just left a movie theater and they said, "Oh, it's a bit depressing that movie." And he goes, "Oh, I only watch depressing films. It makes me feel so much better about life." And and I and I kind of wonder if there's a kind of empathy born from these kind of movies at a time like this. I think so. I mean, there's that, but I think also in quite a few of them, you know, it's about like picking up the pieces. So um, I think in some of like the you know the the Italian sort of neo-realist film, the other one I watched out in Umberto D, which I'd never seen before, about seeing that kind of struggle, but ultimately like, you know, life kind of finds a way through it all. So like sort of, I mean, some of them are really bleak, like the ending of Germany year zero is about as bleak as it gets. Mm. But then Umberto D has like one of the most, you know, soaring emotional humanist endings of all. So I think it's a bit of both really. I mean, it's really interesting to see a lot of wartime films just because of the curfew, like just watching like curfew films and thinking, oh, this is, you know, the, the, the difference is, is that, you know, back then you had like, um, well, there's this place in London called the Windmill Theatre, which they made a film about. There's that Judy Dench film, um, Mrs. Henderson Presents. And it was a musical vaudeville sort of cabaret theatre. And its uh, motto was, we never closed because they didn't close um, during the Blitz. And um, that place still exists. It's now like a lap dancing gentleman's club <laughs> and it is closed. Oh, so right. like, so like the coronavirus finally Thank did God. in the windmill. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear There'll that. There'll be no Judy Dench film about the, the windmill currently, I'm sure. Um, there's one on here. Uh, there's a movie we're going to talk about in the second part of the show, but there's one that's really hard to get here that I saw at a, a film festival, just knocked my socks off, um, which is Roy Anderson's A Swedish Love Story, his first film. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about Roy Anderson later. I, yeah. I, uh, I'm a big Roy Anderson fan, but I hadn't seen, um, I'd seen his more recent films, but I hadn't seen his, his first film. 
And what's funny is that my girlfriend sort of like, told, you know, she hadn't seen any of the recent ones, but she said, everybody's seen a Swedish love story. <laughs> like, so like a Swedish love story, I guess, in its day in Sweden, at least, was like a massive, massive hit. Yeah. And it's very, there's a couple of films I've seen recently. I've seen two Swedish films that are sort of somewhat similar. There's another film, which probably wasn't, wasn't in that pile. I watched um, Lucas Moodison's uh, Fucking Armel. Oh, uh, Fucking Armel, yeah. Show me love in, um, yeah. or as they pronounce, fucking Armel. But um, <laughs> it's funny. Like I watched Swedish Love Story and fucking Armel, and I was like, oh my god, this is like Gregory's Girl. Like there's sort of these movies that really reminded me of Bill Forsyth's nice. Gregory's Girl. Which, if you haven't seen that, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that one, but love it, love it. Beautiful movie. I did think that might be one of my upcoming double bills. As I thought, Gregory's Girl and fucking Armel would be an amazing double bill. Ooh, nice. That's basically the same movie in like different cultures. Yeah, and it's sexualities. It is crazy how relevant. I mean, the Swedish love story just felt like it could have been made now. There's something about the voice, and it's so different than his other work, which we'll talk about. Obviously, a, a massive change in style by a director. I don't think I've seen a bigger one, a bigger yeah. shift. But we'll get we'll get to that in in a, in a sec. I also wanted to ask uh, maybe the Lon Chaney collection if you discovered any. I don't know how many of those you watched in the in the Lon Chaney so. Oh, I was just trying to watch. Um, I was some kind of like. Uh... I think it was like some, there was some horror list. Maybe it was like the Time Out top 100 horror films of all time. And annoyingly, there was like maybe like two or three that I hadn't seen. And one of them was The Unknown, which I haven't watched yet. But I did start watching, which were probably the, the wrong ones to start with on that collection. I started watching What Is Left, which is basically nothing of London After Midnight. Uh, so I don't know if you've seen what that yeah. is on the DVD, but it's basically production stills. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because um, there's nothing left of that at all. So hmm. um, I was just trying to watch some of the ones that, um, you know, um, uh, I bought that one to, to watch The Unknown, which is weirdly the one I haven't watched yet, but... Um, let let, let me tell you, you, it is one of the best things I have seen ever. It's like one of those films that you're just like, holy shit. When you get to it, it's one of those movies. I haven't so. seen it. I, I wish uh, I, I should have gone. For, uh, I mean, yes, maybe that'd be the next thing I watch. <laughs> London After Midnight was not the one to start with. <laughs> the non-film. <laughs> Given that it basically doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good attempt. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Um, it's definitely interesting. And there's a couple others. I, I just, I mean, I know we have other things, but I'm curious what you thought of uh, Herzog's The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. I, I just find those two films uh, he made with Bruno S to be just really fascinating. It's not as fun as Strozek by any means, but it's an interesting, bizarre movie. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen, um, he's another director that I've seen probably about half the movies. And I think I've seen all of the Klaus Kinski ones, hmm. but there are some other of his films that I hadn't seen. And like, I think... Um, I think it's a, what's the other one called? Is it Stroisek or, or uh, no, what's the other one called? Stroisek's the American one with the guy going to Wisconsin. Yes. The German coming to Wisconsin, yeah. What's the one with the very similar title starring Klaus Kinski? Oh, Wojzek. Wojzek. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got all the Zeks. I've seen the Wojzek, but not the Stroisek. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I know Stroisek is the last film that Ian Curtis watched before he committed suicide. The oh, that's right. Curtis. You see it in that biopic, yeah, The Dancing Chicken, you get to see, yeah. And it also, it's the one that uh, inspired the line in Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. Oh. That's, like hypnot- that's like hypnotizing chicken. Oh, oh right. I did and not know. Like that makes inspired. sense. But I haven't seen the film, but uh, maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to you on one. I, I actually bought, that was one of the things, there's two Werner Herzog box sets, and I had yep. the Klaus Kinski one, but I didn't have the other one, so I bought the other one, and I started with Casper Hauser, and... Um, it was funny. And this is like, I'm, I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit it because I, I don't think there's any shame in admitting films you hadn't seen. But sometimes I look, I, I make this, 
and I'll probably never show this to anybody, but I have like a list of films I haven't seen. And I'm always, sometimes I show it to people because I'm kind of like, uh, I want to see what they say. Oh my God, you've got to see this one first. I want to see which one they want to say first. But then I usually make them up out of other lists. And there was an interesting list that Martin Scorsese, you've probably seen things all over the internet where Martin Scorsese had given some film student a list of 40 foreign language films to see. Say, you know, consider this your foreign language movie education. And I looked at the list and there again, there was like, I'd seen like 60% of them. I was like, fuck, I didn't yeah. see these other ones. One <laughs> I bet I'm in the same. Yeah, and the other one was Enigma. One of them was Enigma of Casper Hauser. So um, it's funny. I watched that film. I really enjoyed it. And the lead actor, Bruno S., looks stunningly similar to my friend, the comedian Rich Fulcher, who I don't know if you know him. He plays Bob Fossil in The Mighty Boosh. And he's oh, okay. a frequent uh, contributor to Drunk History. <laughs> Even though the movie was very good, I couldn't quite get Rich Fulcher out of my head. <laughs> that was like watching my friend in this movie. There was one bit. Uh, where it really made me, even though it's it's um, not funny, um, no, I wouldn't call it a comedy. There was one bit which really made me laugh when um, when Casper Hauser uh, tries to put out a candle and doesn't know that it's hot, and then like he yelps, and then Bruno S looks right at the camera, and it was like a sort of weird. I don't feel it was an intentional. It felt like a maybe an unintentional breaking the fourth wall moment. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, he wasn't an actor, so I, I, I could imagine anything. I mean, he, the, I think you'd like Strozak a lot because it's so funny. It's more of a yeah. comedy than most of But Enigma of Casper Hauser reminded me a little bit of a certain Ashby film that might come up later. And that's the only reason I was curious. You know, what other film it reminds me of, weirdly, that uh, is um, Bad Boy Bubby. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. He loves oh, that movie. One, I'm, I'm from New yeah. Zealand, so it's one of my Australian. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorites, yeah. Great, great tits, mum. I feel like it's a film that people don't really talk about anymore. No, but it's no Americans, like, I don't think, have really seen it over here. Yeah, it's very much like the sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> like punk rock version of being there in a way, isn't it? And, <laughs> yeah. and somewhat yeah. similar to Casper Hauser, yeah. too. You've just found the best double, triple feature right there. <laughs> I don't know how well they'd play together, mind you. It might be too much. I think probably Casper <laughs> Hauser and, and Bad Boy Bubby would be a better double bill than throwing yeah. being in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, listen. Um, but yeah, think, well, we'll talk about these ones later. Being there in idiocracy would be a good double bill. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Def- I was thinking that God, after yes. watching them. Um, I'm just wondering if there's any others. Uh, were there any that like stood out? There's other ones that I'm interested. I'm always curious if if you'd not seen it before, like four months, three weeks, two days, things that oh, I have. Oh, no, I, I had not seen that one. I, um, I had actually had a copy of it for years and years and years. And um, I, so sometimes when you've had something, you know, it's, do you ever have this when you've had a disc for like a long time, like <laughs> nearly a decade, and then you put it on and then it's, a, it's incredible. And then you think, wow. I guess I could have watched that like 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I have that a lot. So, That's our life. Four months, yeah. three weeks, two days was exactly like that. I was kind of knocked out by it. It wasn't yeah. quite what I was expecting and I thought that was brilliant. And then yeah, it, was it really almost plays like a horror film. You know, it's, it's amazing the power it still has for people. I think the other ones that really locked, knocked me out that I hadn't seen before, I really liked, um, it wasn't in my stack, but I watched The Earrings of Madam Dot Dot Dot. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that movie. It's great. It's such a, a ma- such a brilliantly scripted movie. It's so clever, the construction of it. I really, really appreciated that. And then also... Um, what other ones did I watch for the first time? Um, a lot of Ingmar Bergman ones that I'd never seen, actually. I'd seen, usually the Ingmar Bergman ones, this kind of says everything about the way that I approach film history, is it sort of starts with horror films, and then I sort of go out from there. 
So I'll give you two guesses what the first Ingmar Bergman film I ever saw was. Hour of the Wolf? No, The Virgin oh. Spring. Because oh, yeah, okay. Remake, <laughs> on the left. I should have got that. Remake of it. <laughs> yeah. So I've sort of like done all of the, you know, like it's very telling that the first like three or four Ingmar Bergman films are all ones that had horror elements. Seventh Seal, Hour of the Wolf, Persona, which is almost like a vampire film, like mm. not by name. Um, and uh, so, you know, and Virgin Spring as well. But um, but now I, you know it's been really great actually just watching a lot more of his movies. Um, like I watched Summer with Monica, which is great, and yeah. um, and Scenes from a Marriage, which is incredible, <sighs> and yeah. Fanny and Alexander, which is incredible. It's funny I was reading up about Fanny and Alexander, and Bergman is quoted at one point as saying he thought of Fanny and Alexander as his feel good movie, and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's still a person that burns to death, like in slow motion. Like, so, um, that's great. Other one I was going to say that really knocked me out. Oh, some of the uh, the British ones I hadn't seen. Like, um, I, so, some of these films are ones that I had seen bits of when I was a kid. Like, I definitely seen some of on TV, Ice Cold and Alex and the Cruel Sea. But to watch them properly, like, uh, if you have you seen either of those movies? No, I haven't heard of either. Oh, my God. It's so good. Well, Ice Cold and Alex is a J.D. Thompson movie. Hmm. And it's very famous in the UK because it's like a classic uh, World War II um, adventure. For God's sakes, how you break this thing? Shut up! Temper rough, judgment blurred by exhaustion and rattled nerves. His one determination to make Alexandria before they were killed... Or capture. I'm a drunk, you know that, don't you? You were trying to get us away. The next drink I have is going to be a lager. Ice cold. But Alex was a long way off. There was a whole desert between them. 600 miles of treacherous burning sand of unknown dangers. There's something under my foot. A vast, empty desert suddenly filled with suspicion. A harsh and terrible land that becomes a rendezvous for two lonely people in search of tenderness. A few stolen moments despite the face of war. In a few days you'll have forgotten we ever met. I won't forget. And uh, it's sort of in a similar vein to like the Wages of Fear in terms Ooh. of an A-B kind of mission movie. And it became sort of like... It's one of those movies that um, I think people kind of, people sum it up when they're talking about the kind of whatever the, the, the <laughs> I hate to say the bulldog spirit because uh, that has uh, uh, strains of right-wing nationalism. Whenever <laughs> 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 people are talking about the, the war efforts and the kind of like the sort of British pluck, Ice Cold and Alex is one of those movies that always comes up and it's because John Mills is, um, you know, this, and John Mills is an interesting actor because he's kind of short. So he looks like he's kind of my height or something, but he's like so plucky and he just like will not give up on this quest. And basically, and I think this is why Brits really love this movie, yeah, without giving too much away, but he, he's thinking all the way through the movie about a pint of beer that he's going to have in this bar in Alexandria. And so that's why it's called Ice Cold and Alex. The B of this quest is not the mission, which is about getting this uh, kind of like ambulance through to sort of, um, you know, like a safe port. But it's actually about the pint of beer that he's going to have in this huh. bar. I so Ice that. Cold and Alex is, is the beer. Ice Cold yeah. and Alexandria. 
And they actually, in the 80s, they did these, um, after Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, they did these adverts with a, a British comedian called Griff Rees Jones, where they basically put him into other movies. And one of them was putting Griff Rees Jones into this scene from Ice Cold and Alex with John Mills and Sylvia Sims and the beer. So I think for a whole other generation, the scene was really famous, even if they didn't know what it was from. So I highly, highly recommend that. And also The Cruel Sea, which is another like, like an Ealing World War II film mm. with um, Jack Hawkins in it is really strong as well. Jack Hawkins and Stanley Baker, two actors nice. who I normally mix up yeah. together on screen. Yeah, <laughs> for nice. your clarity. Uh, I didn't see a lot of horror films on the list. Do you, have you, would you I've watch them? them all. All? Oh, as soon as I get through yeah. the unknown, that's it. I've done them all. You're done. <laughs> well, the big one, that when that BFI list came out, I remember when that BFI 100 came out and the one that no one in America had seen, including myself, was threads and i remember none of us knew oh, what that yeah. was until severin just put it out um but it's then a, it really it, deserves it, to be there <laughs> yes threads um directed by mick jackson um I, I guess it's not really a film it's a tv miniseries it's in two parts hmm. it came out the same year as i recall as the day after and i'm not sure that i was allowed to stay up and watch it when it first came out i probably would have been 10 when it was on tv but i remember my parents talking about it it was it was um extremely controversial and it used these um public information films these psas called protect and survive if at the start of threads you see these um nuclear uh warning videos that i think were produced but never shown because they were um thought to be too alarming hmm. um so they actually use those. So at the, at the start of Threads, you see these things called Protect and Survive with this animation and it's um, about how to survive the nuclear apocalypse. And those are real um, public service films. Public, <laughs> we, we, what do you call them? PSAs in the States? PSAs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we call them um, public information films. Hmm. They're real. I mean, the other one I watched that was in a similar vein is probably like, again, the, the best and the worst thing to watch right now is <laughs> I'd never seen Peter Watkins' The War Game until the other day. Oh which I guess is like the threads of 1965 yeah. instead of, um, you know, which, I, I, have you ever seen that movie? No. Yeah, I've seen oh, that one. He, Peter Watkins is a great, <laughs> another one of those directors, right? Who's, who's pretty unknown, I think, in America. Some people know Punishment Park, maybe, but overall his work's not well known. I think sort of, unfortunately, I don't think he's as well remembered here as he should be. I think, mm. I think Privilege, uh, which I really like, and Punishment Park are not as well known as... The war, I guess the war game because it had such infamy because it was banned by the BBC. They didn't show it for 20 years. It was banned by the BBC, so they made it and then the BBC just considered it too hot a potato to put on TV. So then the word got around that it was, um, it was, um, had to be seen and this was the most important British film of the decade. So I think then they basically released it at the cinema and then it won, I want to say it won at Venice and then it also won the Academy Award for Best Short Film. Oh, I don't know. I think that's right. Hmm, interesting. I didn't prep for the war game today. No, nah, so. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, we'll segue to what we did prep for. No, um, no, but I think that's right. I think that's right. But um, yeah, his, his uh, actually Punishment Park is the one I haven't seen yet. And also there's another one. Um, uh, there's another film. My, my favorite is one called Edward Monk. He made a... Oh yeah, I haven't seen biopic. that. It, haven't seen it's that. unbelievable. It's really an amazing movie. I gotta see that. I, I, do, I do really like Privilege though. Yeah, I um, I think Privilege is a really interesting film, and also feels like one of those films that you know it it could be made now about like one of the current pop stars. Privilege, slate one, take one, the start of a new experience in the cinema. Privilege, 
a new insight on a new kind of idol. I'm a person. I'm a person. I'm a person. I'm a person. Stephen Shorter, pop singer. He's not so much a person as a puppet whose strings are pulled for a scheme of total nightmare. Privilege is a terrifying and withering expose of the misuse of power in an age of illusion. I need my freedom. It's that funny thing when you sort of look at it and it's like a 60s film, but it could equally apply to Robbie Williams or Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. One of those movies that could work in any decade with any like sort of pop star, you know, and it's, and it's great that they actually got like a pop star. They got Paul Jones from uh, Manfred Mann playing the lead. Very nice. So we, uh, we wanted to talk to you about bringing some lightness to humans uh, during this time. And I guess uh, Letterboxd had reached out to you, I guess, to ask you for a list at some point in, uh, on comedies. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, um, I think it's cause there's this list that's on the internet. Like it's my thousand favorite movies. And, uh, it was started by this guy called Sam DeSalle because I think I'd done like various lists over the years for like Empire or like Sight and Sound for the BFI thing. And then I was, I was trying to look for it at some point. And uh, I found this thing online on movie. It said Edgar Wright's favorite films. And there was like a list with like 700 films. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is this list? Where did this come from? And I looked through it and it was pretty accurate. And so I was very curious. So I got in touch with the guy who made the list and I said, where did you get this list from? And he said, oh, I just um, basically did it, an aggregate of all of the um, things that you've ever mentioned in interviews. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. That's funny. And I was so sort of taken aback that he'd done it. I said, well, why don't, why don't I help you with it? And then I just kind of went through and I deleted some and I added a ton more. And I think, let's just make it like a thousand movies. But it's something that where, and I keep changing it all the time. Uh, I, not, it's not going to go beyond the thousand, but I thought it was just something that could be fluid. And then you can get annoyed, or like, sort of, you know, like I can do whatever I like, so I can keep changing it, keep kind of taking things out and putting things in. But then Letterboxd asked me if I would do a list, so I sort of said, well, what about, you know, 100 comedies? Because obviously people need some levity right now. And um, although there are quite a lot of serious themes in the 10 that you've picked. I know, I noticed that. <laughs> but... Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, like these things, I, what I find, with, as, as you well know with all this, that's so funny to me, is that like people never see the word favorite and they always um, like sort of say, how can you not have blah blah on here? And I'm like, well, because it's my list of favorite movies and you can't tell me what to do. So <laughs> <laughs> if I don't want to put big traveling little China on there, like tough shit, make your own list. <laughs> yeah, that's my answer always. Make your own list. I encourage it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, other... the other thing I do is I always put the list in chronological order, hmm. and then some joker in the comments I'm getting in. Uh, can we get these ranked, please? It's like, no, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's no in chronological ranking. order. Yeah, I think chronological uh, is the way to go. Chronological, and they say safety last is not your favorite comedy of all time. That it's chronological, you cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I think that should be the title of your list. Chronological, you cunt. <laughs> Uh, but well, it's a killer the, list. I love it. It is great. Yeah. And the ones we picked, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious how we even fall into any list because it's so hard to like pick 10. But, but the two people I did want to talk about before even kind of the not specific films on the list, but like Chaplin and Keaton and just, uh, you know, as kind of giants, I, I think, you know, to all of us. But for you, are they still filmmakers you go back to watch the films uh, often or is it? Oh, yeah. I, I think um, with uh, when I was growing up, most of these things I would see on TV 
And I, I don't recall that often Charlie Chaplin being one of those people like, uh, maybe I just, I definitely saw it and he's so iconic, you, you couldn't like, but when I would watch these as a kid, they'd be some of my earliest memories. And one of the ones we'll get to is literally my earliest memory. But I think a lot of these films, I would have seen uh, excerpts from them or even the movies without necessarily knowing what they're called. So certainly Buster Keaton, I have very vivid memories of the boulder sequence, which I think is from Seven Chances. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. He's been chased by the boulders yeah. down the hill. I think mm-hmm. it's called Seven Chances. And, um, you know, so I, I, some of those images had always really stayed with me. And then I think later I tried to sort of revisit them. A lot of things with some of these movies, actually, and I got a nice kind of setup at home, but like with, with a certain type of movie, I'd say sort of historical epics and also with silent comedy, um, I want to watch it as big as I possibly can. And so sometimes these things I wait, but, you know, I, I, Chaplin, I've seen most of them now and they are incredible. And, uh, and Keaton, I've seen most of the big ones and not all of the shorts, but whenever I revisit them, like the one I watched the other day that I'd never seen, but some of it seemed faintly, um, it felt very familiar to me as I watched The Navigator, which has some amazing set pieces in Love it. Love it. And I, I was thinking, ah, oh, I've definitely seen some of those as a kid. But in the UK, I think a lot of these things um, got repackaged because Harold Lloyd, I'd say in a weird way, with, with people of a certain age in the UK, in terms of silent comedians, maybe Harold Lloyd was as famous as Keaton and uh, Charlie Chaplin. And partly because when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, there would be this uh, repackaged show of his clips. Because I think the Harold Lloyd show even had its own theme tune. Hmm. Hooray for Harold Lloyd. (laughs) 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 Harold Lloyd. Hmm. And so Harold Lloyd, I've probably seen all the movies, but they've been all like chopped up into these half hour shows. So then when I watched again things like Safety Last or um, The Freshman or Speedy, I was like, ah, I've seen all these bits, but I've seen them like bastardized into this, basically this clip show. And uh, I'm not sure if that was the same with Keaton and Chaplin, but I have fuzzier memories of the two of those and very strong memories of Harold Lloyd. But what's been great, I mean, I have the other day, you know, I got up and I watched The Circus, the Criterion Blu-ray of that. I projected it at like 6.30 in the morning. They're like keeping very strange hours like everybody is now. And it was just like the perfect thing to watch. And um, and again, it was one of those movies I say, well, I have seen bits of this. I've seen bits of this, but it was beautiful, you know. And you had said uh, one of the movies was one of your earliest memories. I'm guessing maybe that's the first one on the list, The Music Box? Yeah, it is. When are you two numbskulls going to take this thing out of the way? What's it to you? I should like to pass. Why don't you walk around? What, walk around? Me, Professor Theodore von Schwarzenhofer, M.D., A.D., D.D.S., F.L.D., F.F.F.N.F., should walk around? Get that thing out of my way! Get out of my way! Come on, get out of the way! I, I, whenever I think about the first thing I saw on TV that really stuck with me, it was Laurel and Hardy's short, The Music Box, which um, is the one where Laurel and Hardy are trying to push a piano up a long flight of stairs in Silver Lake. <laughs> not that I knew it, not that I knew it was Silver Lake at the time. But, um, you know, and I've, <laughs> I've watched this again recently twice, and I, I don't know, Laurel and Hardy just makes me uh, absolutely howl. It makes me laugh in the same way that I, I probably would have done when I was six. It's just so 
innately funny and uh, just I was watching a bit of it again today and the thing that really really made me laugh was when uh, there's a point sort of about two thirds of the way through what I love about that show is they get the piano to the top of the steps about four times (laughs) and and it keeps I mean there's one point where they've got it up to the top of the steps and got it close to the door and whilst they're figuring something else out the piano rolls down the hill but then turns a corner to roll down the steps (laughs) and I thought that's genius that the piano itself is like turning a corner so it's like physically impossible I mean, I, I have such strong memories of that short. And then I think when I was in LA, maybe about nine years ago, I went to see at the Aero, um, Los Angeles Plays Itself, um, oh, yeah. that documentary. And they had uh, a clip of the music box in there. And the morning after, I got straight in the car. It was like a Sunday morning. <laughs> at like 9.30 in the morning, I went straight to those steps. It's like, I have to see those steps. Because to me, that was like a cinematic pilgrimage. It's like, mm. this is the first cinema image that I remember. And, and it exists. Obviously, it's massively more built up now than it was in the short. But those steps are still there. They've even got a plaque, haven't they? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's it, wonderful. It's amazing when you watch things like, because I was watching it on YouTube when it made your list. And I'd seen, Lauren Hardy was early for me too. But seeing there's one part of the gag where they've gotten up the steps and I guess he's attached to it and he's pulled all the way down. It's clearly a dummy at one point. Uh, It's so funny. Exactly. And and I'm watching it on YouTube, what, like, you know, 80 years later and actually spitting out because it's so funny. It's such a good sight gag. It's, uh, but I, I saw a real just, It's not of, just the dummy. It's not just Oliver yeah. Hardy's dummy. It's then the, um, him in the um, dubbing booth going, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. yeah, you can see it all, right? <laughs> oh my God. It's funny you mentioned that. That's exactly after the piano was turned the corner as well. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's a great yeah, those I also watched. It's another one where, again, like I saw all these things when I was a kid, but I didn't necessarily know the name. So the other day I watched um, Lockheads, which is about an hour long, which as soon as I started watching it, I was like, I know this. I've seen this. And it was just fantastic. I, I think also Oliver Hardy has one of those things that has obviously been like aped to death afterwards. Not that he was the first person that did it, but the particular way that he does it. I mean, both like Chaplin and Keaton look at the camera. But Oliver Hardy looks at the camera in a particularly, uh, in a despairing way that I think has been, everybody's done it. Like me, definitely we've done it in like our movies, you know, like uh, Eddie Murphy does it in Training Places. And then I think (laughs) then they did it forever in both the British and the American versions of The Office. Mm -hmm. I think like Martin Freeman in the British version of The Office is basically doing the Oliver Hardy which is that like despairing look at camera, which then I think is unfortunately because that then the American one runs for like eight seasons or whatever. It feels like it's kind of like that particular thing has been run into the ground. The, the, but Oliver Hardy, I think, you know, with the person who popularized that, yeah, that um, weary, like, give me a fucking break. <laughs> yeah. Camera, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty great stuff. Um, how did the Marx Brothers sort of play into your... Was that something you saw as a kid? Duck Soup is the next movie we had on the list, and I'm just curious how they come into your I, life. I, I think on TV, again, um, maybe a bit later. I'm definitely aware of them because they're sort of, again... I think, you know, for a lot of people where there's things that there's just the images are sort of so iconic that even if you even if you hadn't seen a Charlie Chaplin film, you know what he looks like. And the Marx Brothers, I definitely was like aware of like who they were as visually... Um, and I suspect I probably just watched the films on TV. And then when I had, when I was about 15, um, my parents never had a VCR. Uh, 
cue violins. They were too, they, they didn't have the money to get a VCR. So eventually <laughs> when I got like a, a Saturday job, I started paying for a, renting a VCR myself. And then, and then I would just start taping comedy movies off the TV. I taped all sorts of movies, but so something like Duck Soup or Monkey Business or Animal Crackers, I tape them off the TV and I've just watched them again and again and again. And, uh, and I think, I don't know if you guys ever do this. I certainly do. Is um, do you ever watch like old movies, particularly screwball comedies, with the English subtitles on? All the time. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, yeah. So I do that all the time, especially with the Marx Brothers, because I feel like when you don't do that as a kid, I'd be rewinding Groucho scenes because you'd just be trying to keep up with it. We've been expecting you. As chairwoman of the reception committee, I extend the good wishes of every man, woman, and child of Fredonia. Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Card? What will I do with the card? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. Now, what were you saying? As chairwoman of the reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? I've sponsored your appointment because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a huff. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. The future of Fredonia rests on you. Promise me you'll follow in the footsteps of my husband. How do you like that? I haven't been on the job five minutes and already she's making advances to me. Not that I care, but where is your husband? Why, he's dead. I'll bet he's just using that as an excuse. I was with him till the very end. Hmm, No wonder he passed away. I held him in my arms and kissed him. Oh, I see. Then it was murder. Will you marry me? Did he leave you any money? Answer the second question first. He left me his entire fortune. Is that so? Can't you see what I'm trying to tell you? I love you. Oh, your excellency. You're not so bad yourself. And especially in like what I also find fascinating about Marx Brothers movies is there's, you know, like a large element of um, jokes that are of the time. But there are sort of specific references that kind of were, must have had them howling in the 1930s. <laughs> and so you have to do a bit of, um, you know, it's like reading Shakespeare is when you sort of have to kind of decode Shakespeare. Sometimes with Marx Brothers jokes, there's like specific references to uh, public figures or department stores or, or, or certain things that like you have to kind of decode it or, or try and figure out the context. But I am such a fan. And it was the great thing about the Marx Brothers, obviously, is they sort of incorporate three different types of humor is like Harpo is the visual comedian, uh, Chico is the dumb comedian, and Groucho is the smart comedian. <laughs> uh, and Zeppo, I was, well, Duck Soup is Zeppo's last movie with them, right? I think and, so. Yeah, it is. And because by Night at the Opera, he's gone. And yeah. I, I did read a Marx Brothers biography, and Zeppo, when he was asked, I think Zeppo later became an agent, but when Zeppo was asked um, why he left, he said, there's only so many ways that you can say, here comes Groucho. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. No wrong. But um, that film is um, it's my favorite one. I think with Monkey Business being a strong second. Um, but all the MGM ones, I, uh, I don't think I've ever really sat through the coconuts properly, but like um, Animal Crackers, Horse Feathers, Monkey Business, Duck Soup, just amazing. Night of the Opera, also classic that starts to get weighed down with extraneous business that's not Marx Brothers like just the fact they have like a romantic subplot that is not that interesting no Duck Soup is the last like pure uncut Marx Brothers and it's amazing 
Yeah, it's great stuff. I love it. Um, speaking of other comic geniuses and just geniuses in general, Billy Wilder, um, we watched The Apartment for this list, but how do you feel about him in general? Well, I mean, um, he's just one of our best like writers as well in terms of like... Um, I think the thing with The Apartment is that like, Some Like a Hot is obviously the other one that's always on like comedy lists and it's incredible. But The Apartment is um, such a brilliantly written character study. And I think, you know, it's interesting... You know, Duck Soup, which we just came from. One of the things I, I watched it again the other day, and I was like, sort of what I loved about it is how utterly formless it is. It's and you just think, oh god, like nobody would make a film like that now, where it has so little regard really for the plot. It's just kind of an excuse to hang gags on it. And then by contrast, like you know, like nearly thirty years later, The Apartment, which I think won Best Picture, right? It's a yeah. Best Picture ton of awards yeah and it was just a sort of beautifully written movie i mean and it works i guess in a way like sort of um the emotional twists and turns that it it, it just works like a drama um that i mean it is essentially i guess it is a drama other than the fact that you have lemon is such a charming everyman as cc baxter what did you do to your hair it's making me nervous so i chopped it off big mistake huh no i sort of like it <laughs> You've got a Lulu. Huh? Yeah, better not get too close. And I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Actually Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? <laughs> now that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. Should have stayed in bed this morning. I should have stayed in bed last night. Like when I first met Simon Pegg, I always like he reminded me a bit of like a Jack Lemon type because he has that kind of everyman quality. And there's something that I feel like those actors, comic actors, sometimes get a bit overlooked because they make it look so easy. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. And um, you know, the, the film obviously like everybody's great in the apartment, but Jack Lemon is such a uh, a sympathetic watchable performer but I, the thing whenever I watch that movie is I just think about how tightly plotted it is that just with all of Billy Wilder's movie there's like, like an ounce of waste and it's just a, a just a masterclass in script writing because like everything even the little character beats is working towards something nothing is in there is just kind of extraneous detail everything is doing something so I always feel like watching his films is like looking at like um a Swiss watch or something like that mm. My favorite thing I saw, I listened to the commentary on the Arrow Blu-ray and the thing that I stood out to me was they called it a masterpiece of compassionate cynicism, which I think is the most well-summed up approach to a movie like that. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm, one of the things I like is actually, um, it's funny when you watch kind of films of that period of a certain ilk, you can imagine the writers of Mad Men like watching it when they're, because it almost feels like you're you're watching the other like sort of uh, stories that are going on in that same world. Like I can imagine all of those movies. It felt to me that probably like Matthew Weiner when he was creating Mad Men, even though Mad Men is not a comedy, like it feels so sort of like in the the world of the apartment with mistresses and uh, you know kind of the corporate ladder and people fucking each other over. It's uh, it's it's such a beautiful movie. I know that's nothing like sort of, you know, such a sort of a, a well-loved movie. That's nothing particularly profound. But I always find that when I watch it now, I'm always like sort of really taken by the power of um, little moments. Like it's amazing that that Billy Wilder can um, have a huge. Basically, the entire film 
hinges on the insert of her makeup mirror with the crack in it. Yeah. And that and that for your heart to break when you see Jack Lemon's reaction to it. And you know, it's always it makes to me when there's a, 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 a like an insert shot has such a um you know can have such an emotional gut punch to it. But I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's such a beloved movie that it kind of feels like there's nothing else to say about it. But like, it is one of those movies that you can um, just, you know, kind of enjoy it. I don't know. It's such a beautifully written film. You know, there are films where like um, you're um, enjoying the twists and turns, even if you've seen it like a hundred times, you know. And that's one of those movies, I think. Because you believe it. Yeah, you believe in it so much. Um, You were talking about Threads a moment ago. So a perfect double feature with Threads would be uh, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, uh, which is one of the most wild movies. But the one thing I'll say about it before, which every time I hear Joe Dante talk about this movie, it's probably my favorite story. If it's true, I struggle to believe it. But he always talks about how he saw it in theaters. And he said, not a single person laughed. Everyone thought it was serious. No one thought it was a comedy. He said because of the timing and the paranoia of what was going on, he says it landed like a drama. And I, my brain can't take that in with Mandrake and Jack T. Ripper. It's like, but this movie is an incredible, incredible film. Yeah, I think it probably, um, you know, it's one of those movies, unfortunately, that like is, is always called prescient. Because <laughs> it always <laughs> is me talking about what's happening right now. I think I, I introduced it at the TCM Festival, maybe like, um, it must have been like a month or so after like Trump got in. And, um, you know, there's, there's, too, <laughs> there's too much in the movie. I mean, mostly in, um, you know, Jack D. Ripper is kind of like... Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say like Trump is like um is like Sellers uh, president was it President Muffley, but he is a lot like um, Jack D. Ripper. I mean, the, the, I mean, what's what's amazing about this film is just um you know obviously having this uh, major potentially apocalyptic event and just you know us governed by petty self-serving narcissists. General, it is the avowed policy of our country never to strike first with nuclear weapons. Well, Mr. President, I would, I would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy. <laughs> that was not an act of national policy, and there are still alternatives left open to us. Mr. President, we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing, but it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. General Turgeson, I think I've heard quite sufficient from you. Thank you very much. I mean, it's funny. You've got, actually, there's another one coming up later. But, I mean, Duck Soup is also about a yeah. bunch of imbeciles <laughs> running a government. I mean, uh, Dr. Strangelove, I mean, Dr. Strangelove is a really interesting movie because I think I like it more and more the more that I see it. And, actually, I've seen it once or twice at the cinema. And, um, actually, the last time I watched it at the TCM Festival on the big screen was the first time that I'd realized in that famous scene where Peter Sellers is on the phone to the Russian president, it was the first time I'd noticed that Dr. Strangelove is sitting at the other end of the table and that they oh, had yeah. an extra in Dr. Strangelove makeup <laughs> who's, been, who's sitting in that war room set the entire time. 
And I, I'd never noticed that before. Maybe other people are sitting at home going, oh, come on, Edgar. I saw that first time. But I never noticed Dr. Strangelove I've sitting no, I still there. haven't. I hadn't noticed that myself. That's great. Oh, well, go back. It's when, yeah. when Peter Stead is on the phone to the Russian president. Dimitri. <laughs> That's right, Dimitri. <laughs> yeah. goes, no, I'm, of course I want to speak to you. <laughs> I love that. You're, I'm upset. You're uh, so incredible. I mean, yeah. the thing as well, what's really interesting about that movie is that I think it's one of those movies that, uh, like you wouldn't call it flawed because it's a perfect movie, but it obviously has things in the production about it where there are like what ifs. And um, one of them is the fact that Peter Sellers was going to play Slim Pickens' part yeah. and abandoned it when he couldn't really nail the Texan accent and um, <laughs> they gave the part to. So you can see, even though Slim Pickens is obviously amazing and involved in one of the most iconic images in cinema with him riding the bomb. And, and if Peter Sellers. I'm sure he's the person to make the right call on whether he can do the Texan accent or not. If he thinks he's not cutting it, then fair enough. But you can almost imagine the other movie with four Peter Sellers in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's interesting. And then also, you know, the ending is interesting because it, um, and I know there's a whole scene that they shot and I think maybe it was in like the original preview versions with the pie fight. Um, it was going to end with a pie fight. And I can understand why they cut that out, but it's always a movie that I'm always... Every time I watch it, even if I've seen it several times, I'm always surprised at the, the suddenness of the ending and the fact that you've kind of got the strange love sequence with his... You know, it's also amazing sometimes when you watch movies like that that are so classic that Peter Sellers as Dr. Strangelove himself is such a famous bit and such an uproarious bit. And yet it's only on screen for like three minutes. And it's amazing yeah. for something to sort of become you know, a defining moment of comedy cinema. And then you're thinking like, wait, this is it. This like, this 90 seconds, this is it. With him doing the kind of like his arm doing the sea car without him being able to stop it. But it's always, it always surprises me how suddenly it ends. I mean, the Vera Lynn kind of song at the end is like so beautifully done. Vera Lynn is still alive actually, amazingly. Mm, I don't know. Vera Lynn, who sung uh, We'll Meet Again, uh, which the queen herself uh, <laughs> quoted in her kind of speech the other day. Um, <laughs> Vera Lynn is alive at like 102. Oh, wow. Wow. Only Vera Lynn can get us through this. If she <laughs> goes, we're completely fucked. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because in that film, I feel like, yeah, the show your performance is strange. But one of my favorite characters in all of movies is Mandrake. I think Peter Sellers yeah. as the British, as this kind of almost timid officer, he's so good. The thing he says about the watches, yeah, brutal little bastards, but they make such bloody good watches. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just one of those lines burnt into my memory. I don't know why, but he's so, he's so versatile. It's, it's, I, you just wish he had had even more chances to show off all these different sides to what he could do. I think Pink Panther, obviously, you, once you're in that zone for too long, um, I kind of took too many years out of his other work he could have done. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is Peter Sellers in the UK, at least, and this is well before I was born, but he was already a comedy superstar before Inspector Clouseau because through the radio show, The Goons, he was like already like a superstar. And then obviously through The Pink Panther, he becomes an international star. So it's interesting, like, you know, um, I mean, then I think if you look at his credits... It's something like um, in the same year, there's, um, hang on a second, I got to look at this myself. I know that it's like the Pink Panther and Strange Love, and oh yeah, I, like, yeah, it, it's, well, I guess Pink Panther came out in 1963, but I think it was still playing in 64. Then Dr. Strange Love is out in 64 as well. Then the world of Henry Orient is also out in 64. Mm. And then also in 1964 is the second Pink Panther movie, A Shot in the Dark. Oh, yeah. For my money, 
That's is the best of the. Mm-hmm. It's not Pink Panther movie, but it's the best of the Inspector Clouseau films. Yeah, I'm shot in the dark. That. I'm shot in the dark. Is is definitely superior to the Pink Panther, but it's like the best. But imagine all of that in one year. That's not even before you get into like the next. It's it's an insane career. I mean, no, no wonder. I mean. I'm sure you've either seen films or read about him. Or there's a there's that documentary, isn't there, called The Ghost of Peter Sellers about the making of The Ghost of the Noonday Sun, which I haven't seen yet, but mm. I really want to see. But he was a, a a complicated individual, but just a megastar, you know, incredible. I think Peter Medek has just finished a new documentary. All that's that it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I haven't no, seen that's, either. That's okay. it. The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Okay. Great. I need to see that. About, um, the, about the making of The Ghost of the Noonday Sun, which was. Ah. a pirate movie by Peter Sellers and his former goons colleague, Spike Milligan, which by all accounts was a complete nightmare to make and barely got released. (laughs) I believe it. Um, There's another, this was one I had, I I thought I had seen it, but it turns out I had seen uh, Abigail's Party by Mike Lee was one that I just loved when I was, you know, about 20 years ago, I saw it and just thought it was hilarious. Kind of a Harold Pintery comic, you know, weird masterpiece, but I thought I had seen Nuts in May, but I hadn't. And so I watched it for this and it, I was telling Brian, it was painful because growing up in New Zealand, I was like, oh no, oh no, I've been on camping trips with these people. I, I've been in rooms with these people. This, it felt so well studied, but yet it's hilarious because of the situations. Well, Mike Lee in uh, the UK, I think sort of uh, the two things that really made him famous before, I mean, he'd actually already made a film, which I've never seen called Bleak Moments. And then I think he really started to kind of, um, his film career really started to pick up in the 80s with like Mean Time and High Hopes. But I think Nuts in May and um, Abigail's Party were both incredibly famous. I guess they're both, um, uh, it was a BBC um, strand called Play for Today, which would be um, literally plays on TV like Abigail's Party Mm. or um, Nuts in May, which is basically like a TV movie. But Nuts in May is one of those things where I feel like it really it really influenced an entire generation of comedians. I say specifically TV comedians because, I mean, Mike Lee, like, later moves, still a lot of comedy, but also dramas as well. But I feel like Nuts in May is, like, enormously responsible for, like, a whole wave of um, naturalistic comedy that came in, like, sort of, especially sort of maybe started to rear its head in the, like, 90s and late 90s going forward because... A lot of other TV comedy at that time was like very broad, you know, even something like, you know, like obviously like Monty Python and the goodies and stuff like they're, you know, hilarious, but it's kind of very big. And even like great shows like The Young Ones and stuff, which are one of my favorites, is like very, very broad performances. And I think Mike Lee sort of like brought in, influenced an entire generation of people doing a much more naturalistic style, which I then think became sort of de rigueur to the point where like broader comedy is now seen as being somewhat old hat. And it's funny for like a film of Nuts in May, probably I think had its influence felt 25 years after it was made. There would be something that people keep talking to and like comedians will keep referencing it, you know. And so I think it's something that for a, a lot of people like, you know, myself and Simon and Jessica Hines and like Steve Coogan and um, Ricky Gervais and like uh, the League of Gentlemen guys, like all of those people like refer to Nuts in May. Um, and it's, it is also for me, it has, uh, there's another element to it being uh, I'm very affectionate towards it is because I grew up in that area. It's shot in, um, it's shot in the Southwest of England in an area called Dorset mm-hmm. and uh, where, where they go and so Nuts in May is, is about um, to uh, a couple who are pretty new agey 
um, at a time where I think people didn't even really know exactly what that entailed. I guess it's like in the mid seventies where like all the things that are now all the rage in terms of um, eating uh, raw food and yeah. <laughs> like being, being vegan granola. and everything. Yeah. Which, which now is now is kind of, uh, you know, you can um, go to Whole Foods and get all that very easily. But back in 1976, it was probably a lot, a lot more difficult to be a vegan. But they're basically like a new agey couple who are both teachers, I think, that go um, down to camp in Dorset and appreciate nature. And uh, they're both, uh, you know, <laughs> it's just a great character study of these, um, you know, amusingly irritating, um, self-righteous, uh, people, but uh, Alison Steadman, who was Mike Lee's wife for a very long time and the star of Abigail's Party as well, she plays Candace Marie and uh, Roger Sloman, who is an incredible character actor, plays Keith. And I wouldn't say that my parents were like this because they weren't quite, but there are enough similarities with my parents. My parents definitely like, like for a long time, tried to sort of like go vegetarian. And so whenever I watch this movie, I can't help but be reminded of that a little bit. And, and, and where, they, where they go in the, in the movie is, uh, is really a place where I grew up, like um, Corfe Castle, uh, where they go. And um, is that scene where Alison Steadman sort of uh, sees the litter and she says, All this rubbish, Keith. What? It's awful. Look at those tin cans. Mm. Just imagine, Keith, if all the people who lived here could come back to all these crisp bags and sweet papers. Yeah. They're horrified, wouldn't they? Uh, they find it difficult to comprehend all the changes that have taken place in the world. I think they do come back, Keith. What? They're ghosts. No. Um, I have a picture of myself at that very castle, like age three. Um, it, it, it is something that really just... I, I can't kind of... Um, the people who haven't seen it, I think if you're a fan of British comedy and you watch Nuts in May, it really is a bit like the year zero for a certain type of naturalistic comedy. And it's so funny. And, you know, like me and my friends like quote it all the time. Like, and particularly Roger Sloan, I mean, uh, Alison Steadman like has a little um, uh, like um, kitten hot water bottle called Prudence. <laughs> and there's one bit at the end of the night where Roger Sloman's in a mood about something and she goes, will you kiss Prudence? And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what did you guys watch it for the first time? What did you make of it? I I just loved it. I mean, I haven't seen enough of that early Mike Lee comedy, and I mean, he's an amazing filmmaker. His process by which he develops characters is truly unique, and it was just one of those things where seeing him doing this kind of stuff, but doing the same process clearly that early was just I don't know. It just kind of blew me away. How great and the t- and the tension of waiting for all the characters to interact with Keith and knowing that they're going to have some kind of blowout <laughs> is just great. I loved it. It's just like set up the characters well enough and you can put them in any situation that's going to be inherently funny because you already set the detail. I, th- I think her mentioning the same scene you're talking about with the trash, but her talking about the dungeons and, and him just yeah. saying, well, what is it with the dungeons? It's morbid curiosity. It's just, just funny to see. Also, he's like one of these guys who will talk for her constantly when he's interacting with other men. And it's something, it's like one of those terrible traits that we all might have at some point, but he represents all of them in one being, which is great. Yeah. It's just funny when you when I like when I, you know, live in LA and LA is a very health conscious town and there's lots of kind of like health fads and stuff. And it's funny that there's this film from like, you know, like forty four years ago now that I mean it's like that scene where um where Keith is uh, when she asks, she says, um she's chewing and she says <laughs> Keith. Hmm? No no you 
always tell me to do everything 72 times. Mm. Well, I don't think that can be right because, um, for instance, you're chewing nuts now and they have to be chewed 72 times because they're very hard. But earlier on I was eating mushroom and I only got as far as 31 and it slipped down my throat quite naturally. So it doesn't always have to be 72 times, does it? The important thing is to uh, use your discretion. Um, the favourite thing about Keith is at one point she says to me, she goes, Keith, what are you reading? And he says, the Guinness Book of Records, which like, <laughs> says everything about that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about Sellers and the other great, well, I mean, there's so many great Sellers performances, but one of the ones that stands out is Being There, Hal Ashby's movie from 79. And we all watched this again, and what a beautiful movie, I got to say. Mr. Garner, do you agree with Ben, or do you think we can stimulate growth through temporary incentives? As long as the roots are not severed, all is well, and all will be well in the garden. In the garden? Yes. In a garden, growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. Spring and summer? Yes. <clears throat> then fall and winter? Yes. I think what our insightful young friend is saying is that we welcome the inevitable seasons of nature, but we're upset by the seasons of our economy. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Again, it's one of these movies that um, I feel like, you know, around, <laughs> around the time of like Trump's campaign, there's like sort of two movies that kept coming up and well, three movies, one of them is on this list as well. Like um, Ili Kazan's Facing the Crowd feels very much like the rise of Trump. And sort of being there feels like the sort of the anti-Trump in the sense that like um, Chauncey Gardner like rises from nowhere like to, uh, in, in the last scene of the movie, they're whispering about him being a potential presidential candidate. <laughs> but he is unlike your current president. Um, he is like the benign fool. Chauncey Gardner is like somebody who kind of like fails upwards. Not even he's failing upwards, but he just, by chance, he just gets to be in the kind of um, suddenly in the room where it happens by doing nothing other than being completely honest and with no, with no real understanding of what's going on around him. And it, it's such a, what I love about this movie, uh, I've watched it a couple of times, I watched it again the other day, is um, like, a, it's not a farce because it's so beautifully made. It's so, so exquisitely made. So you would never call it, fast because it's not like slamming doors or people raising their voices and yet it's one of those brilliant movies that is like a farce in that uh, chance encounters happen and entire stories are woven out of one misunderstanding of one word like so and and it's just so brilliantly written that everything there's this brilliant cause and effect to everything in the movie like even just the way that they call him chancy gardener because he's coughing on his whiskey that he's not used to drinking and she thinks his name is Chauncey Gardner and then it sticks and that becomes his name. And like, 
it's a, it is a beautiful movie, but it, it's so brilliantly constructed and with such economy, like, again, like the uh, apartment, just there's no, like, fat in it. Everything is doing something, and all of the setups are just brilliant. But and, and it's funny that one of the things, actually, from I remember when I first watched it is um, I was reading about this, um, is I think the first time I watched it, I thought that outtake that's on the end credits was really funny. And then I was reading about it uh, more recently, and it said that Peter Sellers was unhappy that they put a blooper on the end credits because he felt that it ruined his Oscar chances. And I have to say, I think Peter Sellers is right because, you know, the, the Pink Panther films, they used to have bloopers at the end and that's fine. And then like, around that time you had like the Cannibal Run and Smoking the Bandit with bloopers at the end. And being there is a, not only is it a better film than that, but the end shot is probably one of the best end shots in any comedy movie. So go out on your amazing shot and don't put in some like goofs that could eventually go on a DVD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's weird. It's, I loved seeing it this time, that, that blur, but you're completely right. I mean, it changes the fabric of the character you just watched. It changes it from a character to a Peter Sellers role. Instantly. It's also interesting that the bit that he's uh, laughing at is not in the movie. So yes, they but... also couldn't get through it and like, <laughs> left it on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been made out of fear. They might have been scared that it's a Peter, straight Peter Sellers movie that didn't have the normal Sellers touch. And then they might have... I'd love to hear why Ashby put that in, actually. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Well, it's weird. I mean, it's weird when you have that ending with that shot, which is incredible. Yeah. And then, then go to this blooper. Something, I mean, I think maybe at the time they, they thought that, yes, they needed something like that. But it's, um, I don't want to say it ruins the movie because it's kind of fun to watch. But like, I would get rid of that. I don't <laughs> personally just put it on the extras. Yeah, yeah. Um, next up on the list are two movies from 1987. We'll just lump them together because they're both incredible, incredible, frenetic, stylistic, amazing masterpieces. And that's Evil Dead 2 and Raising Arizona. These are two of your favorites, I believe. And made by friends. But they also, um, I think the thing with these movies is they're two, they're two movies that if I didn't want to be a director before I saw them, I really wanted to be a film director after I'd seen them. And I'd always been interested in film and doing something in it. And I didn't really know whether that was being a writer or an actor, I wasn't really sure. But it was really like Sam Raimi's story, which was on a British TV show, which actually you can find on YouTube. There was this um, Jonathan Roth show called The Incredibly Strange Film Show, um, which was about genre authors. And there was a whole hour, I think in 1988 on Sam Raimi. There are two schools of thought, I think, for horror filmmakers. One is that the audience can always create something more horrible than you can show them. And the other school of thought is, show them, show them, show them, everything. And I believe that both is true. I believe the audience can come up with something more horrible in their minds than I can show them, provided they're given the raw materials to construct something. And I also believe that I have got some pretty horrible things to show myself, so I try and mix and match. I try and scare them and weird them out with visuals, and I try and leave room for them to add their own ingredients to create. And I saw that when I was 14 and it just knocked my socks off that that was even possible. And they're on YouTube now. Those, those yeah, they're all on YouTube. They're well, I, I discovered those watching. when I was young. They're, they're amazing. They're so fun. Yeah. But also it's just something so inspirational. And I think I probably saw Evil Dead 2 before I saw the first one because in, in the UK, the first one was unavailable on VHS for a long time because it was swept up in the video nasty scandal. And ironically for something that's actually Evil Dead is such a fun horror movie, it was pretty much the poster child for like uh, this video nasty scandal that, um, you know, these uh, X-rated obscene movies were being shown to kind of like uh, 
kids and, and Evil Dead became forever associated with that. And I think in a weird way, and I've heard this story from Sam Raimi himself, that I think the shift to comedy in Evil Dead 2 is partly because, you know, Sam Raimi in the UK had been tried for obscenity for Evil Dead. He actually had to go to court Mm. in Leeds on an obscenity trial about Evil Dead. And, And obviously, when you're in court trying to defend a scene where a woman is raped by a tree is maybe like sort of makes you think twice about the scene in the first place. So... I think the shift to comedy in Evil Dead 2 is possibly because of that. And the other thing about these two films, I don't really have too much to say about Raising Arizona that I haven't said before. It's like my my favorite movie. But I find it amazing that Evil Dead 2 and Raising Arizona were released by friends because Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen and uh, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi were all pals um, and had done a movie together, Crime Wave, and Joel Cohen was the assistant editor on the first Evil Dead. Anyway, Raising Arizona and Evil Dead 2 were released on the same day in 1987, which always blows oh, wow. my mind yeah. that they actually had the same, they were released on the same day. Also the same day as Lethal Weapon. <laughs> ah, but I, so I just feel like sort of, I, I didn't see either of them at the, I mean, I probably saw both of them a couple of years after they came out when they were on VHS, but they're both probably, along with American Wealth London, sort of like the, the most influential films in terms of me really wanting to be a director, you know. And I see your physical comedy, like the the it was really fun doing these movies because I saw that through line from the Laurel and Hardy gag to your films, and and through these ten films, most of them have this incredible sense of the sight gag and physical comedy. And and when I watched Evil Dead Two again, which I'm like you, that was one of the films that made me want to do this. Uh, Evil Dead Two, when I see Bruce Campbell alone with the plates and that whole sequence and him talking to himself, like saying "Who's laughing now?" and the in- intonation changes from like you know painful to like a manic. Uh, it's just, it's one of those things that I can see a, a lot throughout your work. So it's, it's really cool to see that through line through these comedies. Bruce Campbell's painful Yelp is not a million miles away from Oliver Hardy's. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Is Bruce, and I, I said I had to ask because I was curious, has Bruce, because I know most of us always want to, to see Bruce in one great movie, you know, post, I keep wondering if the Coens were ever thinking about casting him in a bigger role, but is he somebody you ever uh, contemplated casting or is it just, is it just a different generation? Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, if I had the right role, I think in a weird way, you, you want to use Bruce Campbell doing something different. Sometimes yeah. there's those people that he feels like it, that's, he's, the, I mean, Bruce Campbell would never want to hear this because he would work out for anything, but sometimes you think, oh, that's that person's like actor yeah. and stuff. But that's probably not the way to, th- he's so synonymous with like yeah. Sam. Um, that's probably, you know, in, in a weird way with Bruce Campbell, it would be good to get him to do something radically different. Uh, that would be interesting to me. That said, I love him being, I never saw that film, but he, you know, he's played himself in a genre movie. Hasn't he? I never actually saw that movie. Oh, right. The one he directed, My Name is Bruce or something? Yes. But like, you know, it's, it's such an amazing sort of like comic persona where like sort of him and Ash are sort of uh, indistinguishable from each other. And I like, so I did, I did a Q&A with the two of them at the, um, to promote, I think it was for Beyond Fest at the Egyptian. Oh, that's, and, that's one of the best Q&As I've ever seen. Like they were uh, just I dynamite. I recorded it actually. They probably did. They probably did. I don't know if they did actually, but we should find out because it was really good, but I really prepped and I actually refused to do it unless Sam did it as well because they said, hey, we want to do a Q&A with like you and Bruce Campbell and maybe Sam Raimi. And I said, I'll do it if Sam Raimi does it. And then I think he came along. And the thing about Sam Raimi, who is a dear friend, is he's so ridiculously modest. I literally had to hold him captive in front of an audience of like, 500 people to tell him to his face what he means to me. And so it was actually a bit emotional doing that Q&A because he's so modest and he so brushes off every compliment that if I said to him, I wouldn't be doing what I was doing without you, he would, um, 
you know, kind of say, oh, you know, oh, that's very nice. But, you know, like he, he plays everything down, but like he, he's, he's a very important filmmaker to so many. So it was nice to be able to tell him that even if I had to hold him captive to do it. <laughs> it, it, it felt like I told someone right after that q and it felt like time travel. I felt like seeing them on stage with you, it felt like both of them went right back to being two 20-year-olds reliving these stories. It was unbelievable. In that it way. was really sweet. And I felt that Sam seemed like actually, I mean, yes, yeah, Sam said the same thing. That like, I mean, I, I felt that as well as he seemed extremely relaxed and like, because sometimes when people do a lot of Q&As, they have their kind of like their normal stories. And I think I hopefully I kind of managed to sort of just put them at ease to sort of just because I just wanted to focus on like just the, the nuts and bolts of making a movie when you've got no money or you're selling air conditioner units like they were <laughs> door to door. Yeah, so they were talking about their empty suitcases that the, the two of them and Robert Taper walking around with these cases that had nothing inside. <laughs> on golf courses, people. right? There are golf yeah. courses or whatever. <laughs> um, the, the, one of my favorite movies uh, of the last 20 years, I started a film festival in 2001, I think, uh, and I hadn't seen any war- films by this director beforehand, is Roy Anderson's Songs from the Second Floor, which is like this Benwellian, you know, just epic masterpiece the way it looks. But uh, I was really excited when I saw this on your list, especially when I saw that you'd also seen his first films and could tell you were obviously a fan of his. Yeah, I mean, Songs from the Second Floor, I think, I think Roy Anderson is one of those people who doesn't quite get enough love. And I think one of the things, it's in a similar harking back to what I was saying about silent comedy, that Roy Anderson films have to be seen on a big screen. It's yeah. the same as Jack Tatty. I think Jack Tatty is if you're watching a Jack Tatty film on a TV, you are not getting uh, the full experience. And Roy Anderson films, like on a, on a small TV or on your iPhone, you are not going to be able to enjoy them. Like you have to see it big. And I think that's something that is like, brilliant thing about his film is it probably has held them back from being as famous as they could be and he's an incredible director because um it's very unique i mean i think the things that are closest is it sort of has these elements of louis bunuel and um fellini and uh, and jack tatty but it's all like um shot through with this particularly swedish existential angst and Everybody is, if you haven't seen any of his films, um, there's three of them. is um, Songs from the Second Floor, You the Living, which actually I think is the funniest of the three. Yes. I probably if I did the list again, I would swap out Songs from the Second Floor for You the Living. But watch all three, they're amazing. And then the third one is called A Pigeon Sat on a Branch, Reflecting on Reality. And there's a new one, which I haven't seen yet, called About Endlessness, which won Best Director at Venice last year, and I can't wait to see it. Mm. But um, his movies, they're all shot in one... Uh, each scene is one shot. There's no coverage. They're all like little vignettes. And everybody is wearing um, uh, like death makeup. They're all wearing, they all look like they've been in the mortuary for a couple of days. Everybody's got gray makeup on. So you feel slightly like you're watching some, um, even though it's set in sweet, uh, some unnamed Swedish city, you feel like you're watching something that's set in purgatory. It does feel like this strange, <laughs> movie where you you know in every frame you're reminded that people are going to die eventually by the fact that they already look dead it's and, and then and then on top of that in songs from the second floor uh, your main character starts getting followed around by you know ghosts with unfinished business i mean i'm not selling it as a funny film but it is extraordinarily funny in places uh, he also has an amazing he's an amazing stylist because he shoots all of his films in the studio and they're all um much more than you would think they're all in the studio and very few of them are on location and when you start to analyze that that they've actually made kind of um sets with um you know false perspectives or like amazing map paintings 
then it really starts to become extraordinary where you start to analyze the, the shot and say, wait, this is a set. We're not in the street right now. But he's an incredible director because I think he sort of just creates a, um, a, a different world. It's like this, he, he feels a bit more like a painter than a director in a way that, that he creates. There's a particular palette that's in all of the films. You feel a bit like you're watching some sketch show from uh, The Afterlife. And uh, that's a good review. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. I, f- I feel like it's funny, like with um, talking about Ingmar Bergman, is that I think I saw, I saw the Monty Python films before I'd ever seen an Ingmar Bergman film, and, and probably Louis Boonwell as well. And then when you see Louis Boonwell or Ingmar Bergman after Monty Python, you're like, ah, I see. But in a weird way, Roy Anderson is synthesizing those things back the other way. So he's taking elements of Boonwell and Bergman and uh, Fellini. And it's, it's not like a Monty Python movie, but there's elements of it that start to feel like you're watching the Swedish version of, and now for something completely different. I mean, uh, I'd say like, if you're uh, like, I might doctor the list and put you the living, which they're all brilliant, but you the living, I think is the funniest of the three because it has two side gags in it that are just like anybody could enjoy them. That's the thing that's amazing about his films is it's so specific and so, um, it's so specific in its outlook and its uh, philosophy that for a lot of people, it would seem like a very strange movie. And yet there are moments of physical comedy that are as funny as anything else in this list. And he's just like one of those people who can make you think about, um, you know, the sheer futility of life and then have you howling at some sight gag in the next second. So I feel like he's somebody that doesn't get enough love. Hopefully when things go back to normal, that endlessness will come out and everybody will see it. But I, I love his movies. And if you have the chance to see them on a bigger screen or you can, you know, you have a better setup at home, just not, not one for the laptop, definitely worth waiting for. Like they're just made to be works of art made to be seen on the biggest canvas. Yeah, it's so, one of those director inspirations when you can see he starts off almost like a Cassavetes. He has a film that I've never been able to see called Gilap that was a total failure, I guess. And then he reinvents his entire style and directs commercials for like 20 years in that style, takes the money and creates a studio for himself and then makes his yeah, movies as an auteur. On, on YouTube, a lot of his commercials are online, which are extraordinary. But he yeah. isn't, you know, and he's still a working director. I was in Stockholm uh, earlier this year and I, I, I didn't know to meet him, but I walked past the studio and I was like peering inside because you could That's see cool. some of the little miniatures and like sort of like um you know uh, uh, and bits of set and stuff but it's really worth watching watching one of the movies and then looking at some of the making of stuff online and you'd be shocked at how much of it is actually in the studio it's extraordinary Hmm. Hmm. fantastic well we'll we'll close out thank you so much edgar for doing this we'll close out with uh idiocracy which i know we all just watched recently and what were your thoughts upon this most recent rewatch well (laughs) I thought I, I actually was pleasant because I actually thought I was worried about putting it on the list because I thought maybe it doesn't hold up but oh my god it holds up it's too it's one of those films that's unfortunately during like the sort of the Trump administration has been I think since he announced his campaign it's like people just putting memes of idiocracy right up I mean even the other day when Trump was talking about the virus and saying it's very smart and you can't <laughs> see it and it's so smart it's like really uh, like sort of it's a brilliant thing I just kept thinking it's got electrolytes, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, there's too many things that have happened recently that are too close to idiocracy, like President uh, Comanche, is that his name? Ma- um, Camacho, I think. Camacho, yeah. Like coming on stage with like sort of like a, an automatic weapon is not a million miles away from Bikers for Trump being in the Oval Office. It's like, we're, we're already there. That's the scary thing about idiocracy. I mean, what, 
I mean, it's also one of those movies that I know it barely, barely got released. It like feels like, I mean, the film, the film feels like it's all, it's only just finished. I mean, I'm sure because of, I heard they were like, I'm sure in the States as well, like apparently it had a, a good test screening in the UK and a terrible one in the States, which sounds about right because obviously it's a pretty self-lacerating movie. And, um, you know, sometimes with movies like something like Starship Troopers, like some test audiences don't, I remember somebody talking, Ed Solomon, the writer of Starship Troopers, said the test screening was going really well until the audience realized they were being laughed at. <laughs> and I think probably a similar thing happened with Idiocracy, where people are watching it and saying like, hey, you know, this is pretty fucking savage. And that's why it's become, I mean, it really holds up. And it's pretty, I mean, the, the opening of Idiocracy with the, um, the smart couple not having kids is <laughs> pretty <laughs> And I think, unfortunately, some of it is just all too close to home at the moment. But it's a funny movie. And, and um, I love, love, love the ending with the kind of payoff to the time machine. If you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. But also, it does feel like there were probably quite a lot of production problems because there's an awful lot of voiceover in the movie. And that seems like something where they obviously shot other stuff and like somebody is trying to save it or Mike Judge is, you know, kind of trying to retain as much of his vision as possible. But it is, it, it re- I'm really glad I put it on the list because it's, uh, you know, that's the funny thing is not consciously at all, but so many of the movies that we talked about have elements of what's going on right now. Duck Soup being there, Doctor Strange Love, Idiocracy. That wasn't <laughs> yeah. by design. But as I was watching, it was like, oh boy, these are all yeah. like the same movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's crazy. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Edgar. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on the show and talking about movies, and this has just been great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hope to see you all soon at the cinema. (laughs) Yeah, at the New Beverly, no less, someday soon. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to that day. Thanks so much, Edgar. Thank you. I gotta run. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Edgar. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.